All right. Well, today we are continuing our whole Common Ground series, and we're, we're talking today about a pretty intense topic. We're really starting in this series this week and in the future weeks to get into some of these issues. And today we're talking about life, death, and the defenseless. And with that, we've had even this last month the first minor to be euthanized in Europe. Uh, we've seen just this catastrophic rates of abortion in our country and around the world. Uh, also, even just heard this morning about an autistic kid who was just beat up because he was taking pictures and somebody felt like it was an awkward exchange, and so they beat him up. And we consider all of these, uh, these, these issues, we are talking today about abortion, about end-of-life issues, about uh, we say the defenseless, it are vulnerable people who, um, you know, vulnerable people who aren't perceived to have value. And so with this, though, as, as we start to get into it, I want to give a couple uh, sort of caveats and things as we consider this. One is that we aren't necessarily talking about you and your specific situation, the decision that you made that you regret uh, whatever it is that, that you're thinking about that, that we're not coming at you to judge you in this today. But we feel like as a faith community, as a church, followers of Jesus, that we don't want to shy away from these kind of big, hard uh, topics and these discussions. That we want to find the kind of common ground that we can find in the Word of God. Uh, some other caveats as we think about that, that this issue is, is so big that there's no way here in a 35-minute uh, session that we're going to be able to cover all of it. And so we recognize that we're going to be scratching the surface. That's why we'll also talk some more about what's coming up this Wednesday night with Dr. Scott Ray, uh, who is a lot smarter than both Doug and myself put together about 10 times. And, uh, but Doug and I are going to be sharing today about all of this, and we're excited to talk about that, but we can't get into everything. And there are a lot of things that are kind of like subparts of not uh, those major things that we're talking about that we just can't hit on. But it's important that Christians are thoughtful and biblical about some of those things. And that could be, you know, just war, the death penalty, defining personhood when it comes to this issue of life, gun violence, suicide, fertility uh, uh, issues like that, or even gene selection. I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, of routes that this goes. But we say that we want to have common ground. And our common ground statement for today is that we love and value life enough to do something. Okay? And Doug's going to share more about that. Absolutely. Have you ever <clears throat> had a drink of water from a fire hose? Well, that's what this morning is going to be like, okay? It's going to be a lot really fast. So uh, prepare yourselves. If you can, even in a way, put on your thinking cap. What we're going to do is we're going to go through some major topics that have to do with life. And, and it gets very complicated and it gets very difficult. I pray that you'd be gracious with me as I walk through these things. We are, like Eric said, going to kind of fly over at 30,000 feet. Now, that being said, we're going to cover some great stuff. I encourage you to dig deeper, to come and talk to us, to come on Wednesday and to begin to invest yourself in these things. So let's begin with the topic of life. Why should you care about human life? The answer should be easy. Hopefully, 
you're a human being, right? So if you're a human being and you have a life, you should care about it. Nobody should be forcing you to give up your life. Nobody should kill your life. You shouldn't kill your own life. And this should all be really easy to understand. Let's just close in prayer and we're done, right? Yeah? No. It is so complicated and it gets very difficult. Let's begin with the obvious life. Why should we care about life? I'm going to give you a couple Bible verses, and if you have a a handout, a bulletin there, an outline in your bulletin, open it up, and we're going to go through that. We're not going to be able to read every verse. I wish that we could. I encourage you to read them on your own, but I will highlight them as we go, okay? You have a passage from Genesis, which talks about God creating life in his own image. So human life is a created thing by God. And as it was created, it was created in his image. The passage in Exodus, which should read Exodus, Exodus 20, not 12. I don't know. Somebody fell asleep at the wheel there. Me. Uh, but, um, it should say Exodus 20. In that passage, it says that we should not murder innocent life, right? If God created life and it's special, well, we shouldn't murder and take innocent life. And then that passage in Luke talks about how are we to treat one another? Well, we're to treat one another as if we were neighbors and treat them with love as we love ourselves and and as we love God. So we have this idea from the Bible and this foundation from Scripture that says, as we were created, we are special, unique, the image of God. Therefore, we ought not to kill one another, innocent life. We ought not to take innocent life. And how do we treat one another going beyond just murder? We are to love one another. We are to love one another. So from the picture from the scriptures, we have this view of life that it's valuable, it should not be taken, and it should be treated with love, right? So moving forward, and you think about, okay, and this plays itself out in our everyday life. How are we to treat one another? We are to put the ethic of the sanctity of life, which means life is important and special. That needs to be at the top, right? It needs to be the heaviest ethic that we have, and it needs to influence all the other ethics. Is this making sense so far? Let me give you a word picture. You have five light bulbs and one bowling ball. The bowling ball and all the other light bulbs are all ethical ideas, right? Decisions you can make. The bowling ball needs to be life. Because if it's not, if you make life one of the light bulbs and you make, uh, say, the bowling ball, if you make that your ethical decision to make free choices, right? I freely decide to do kind of whatever I want, right? And a freedom of choice ethic, right? If you make that the most powerful thing, well, if life is a light bulb over here and it meets up with this bowling ball, who's going to win? The bowling ball. And your ethic of being able to freely choose things is going to then destroy and take over the ethic of life. And it would play itself out like this. You have a really nice car. I love your car and it would make my life so much better. And I really put the ethic of freely choosing to do whatever I want above life. So I'll just kill you and take your car, right? That would be majorly problematic. Well, it gets more confusing after that. But life has to be logically an important thing. It has to really be the thing which influences all other things and is promoted above all else, right? Much more to be said about that. But if on Wednesday you come, we'll be able to talk more in depth. So it gets more confusing than that, right? Because generally as we're going through life, these things make sense. But let's talk about three specific areas in which this gets very confusing in our culture today. The first one, the unborn life. Let's talk about the unborn life. Again, follow along there on your outline. There's these passages. We'll get there in a second. And we're going to talk about the scriptural foundation for that. But first, let me just set up the issue and the problem for us. And again, 
How are you all feeling? Okay? Are you tracking with me? Okay, this is going to be a lot real quick, but here's, here's the issue at play. The unborn life, and what I mean by that is the fetus, right? The, un, the growing thing inside of a woman's womb, right? We have to decide if that's a life or not, if that's a human life or not. If it is a human life, if we beg the question and say, it is a human life, the thing that's growing, the fetus that's growing within a woman's womb, then you have to ask yourself, should we treat that human life as if its ontological status, which means the very being of the thing, is in its status a human life? If we beg the question and say, yes, it is, well, then the answers seem to flow fairly easily from that, and it ought to be treated with respect with dignity. Let me move forward here. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, whoops. I went backwards. There we go. That thing ought to be treated with dignity, with respect, and with care and with love, right? So the unborn fetus in the, cha- in the, wo- in the womb is a human life. It needs to be treated in a certain way. Therefore, ending it, ending that life, right, would be seen as taking an innocent life. Now, there's a lot of emotional things that go along with that. And I'm not, this is, I'm not saying that any of this happens within a vacuum, but what I am saying is that purely based on an ethical understanding and a, and a scriptural uh, basis, if this is true, the ending of a human life in the womb would be seen as breaking the commandment of thou shalt not murder, right? And, that, and that's how that would be understood. However, most people in our society today, if we're trying to find common ground, don't hold that argument. They say that the fetus within the womb is in fact not a human being, right? Well, let me just say a few words to that. If the fetus inside the womb of a woman is not a human being, then it is on the person who holds that claim to decide when, it becomes a human being. When the fetus or the baby becomes a human being with the same right to life as you and I would have, right? And keep in mind, abortion is legal in California all nine months of pregnancy. So in that, you would have to decide where in those nine months. Maybe it's after those nine months. There's a couple options you could hold. One of them is that a, a fetus becomes a human being at birth, at birth, right? Once it is born, it becomes a human being. That has incredible problems to it. Let me tell you just two of them. One is at birth, there are two things that happen. A change in location for the, for the fetus, for the baby, a change in location, and a slight change in dependence on the mother. Those two things have nothing to do with the ontological status, with the status of human being on the baby whatsoever. You can change its location and you can change its dependency and need of care. does not change the status of the thing, right? So it's a problem. You can't just say once it's born, now it's a baby. Because if the minute before it was born, it had the same status as human, just a different location and dependency. You might say, okay, let's go to the next one. Viability. The thing can live outside of the mother's womb. Well, that has problems too, because if you're born in a rural area without any medical support, viability, the, the ability to exist without, outside of the womb, happens around eight months, seven or eight months. But if you live five minutes from Chalk Hospital, it can happen much sooner than that. So viability, the ability to live outside of the womb, doesn't necessarily say anything about the status of human on a baby. All it measures is the status of modern medicine in the where you live. So viability isn't a good one. Well, you could talk about brain activity. 
but all fetuses, all developing babies have the capacity to have brain activity. So there's major problems in locating the time. And it's going to seem as if conception seems to be the only time where you can say this thing becomes a human being. And it needs to be protected from there forward. Even, even going forward, it gets very difficult and very scary if you have a hard time placing the status of human being on a fetus. There's a guy named Peter Singer. He's a professor. He's an ethicist at Princeton University. Princeton Princeton University, I believe. And what he says is this. I don't believe that you can place the status of human on a fetus anywhere within the pregnancy. Even so, yes, when the thing is born, it is just a change in location and dependency on the mother. Even so, the newborn child has no status of human being. He says this. When we kill a newborn infant, particularly one that is severely handicapped, There is not a person whose life has begun or ever will begin. It is the beginning of life of the person rather than the physical organism that is crucial as far as our right to life is concerned. So the idea of infanticide is something that becomes a real problem if you're having a hard time placing humanity on an unborn child. And this line of thinking it seems to be that you, that you would be able to kill a newborn child. This is majorly problematic. And the passages you have there, in Job, we can, I can, you know, we can look at that one later, but what seems to be happening is Job is recalling and saying that when it was decided that he was conceived, right, it was announced that he was conceived, he had the status of human. A boy is in the womb, right? And that when he was announced as being brought about in the womb, he had the status of human. And obviously in Psalms, if you read here, yes, in Psalms 139, the most classic, a different depiction of what seems to be happening in the scriptures, it says this, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And you could read the rest of that, it goes on to wonderfully give a different depiction that God is weaving together us in our mother's wombs. Very different than deciding when human status needs to be placed to a baby. Are you tracking with me still, right? So the problem of life has a very complicated, uh, there's a very, a lot of complication when it comes to the beginning of life. But we need to hold to the ethic that all life is valuable, even the unborn life. As we go forward, we talk about the end of life. What about the end of life? Well, if you see here, we have passages here. Let me just read them and talk about them first. In Ecclesiastes and in Hebrews, what is happening is that God is seeming to know the number of days that we have. And God is saying that he is the one who is in charge of ending and knowing the time of our death. The days are numbered for us to live. We only live a certain amount of time, and God knows that, and God is the one who decides that. So from the Bible, we have this view that life is important. But just as life is important, so is death is important. And it's not something that we should take lightly, and it's not something that we should take into our own hands. And there's two, again, two issues when it comes to the end of life. When it comes to the end of life, the one issue is the idea of life support. And it's the idea that if the natural progression of things in your life leads you to a point to where if 
you do not have the machine and modern technologies to keep you from passing, if you do not have those, you would pass. And it's the natural progression of what God, of what God has decided, what's normally going to happen, and your body decaying of old age or whatever it would be, that you get to a point where the natural progression is that you would pass, hopefully, into the loving arms of God, Right? But in our modern day, we have the ability to keep some people alive. And some people think if you remove life support, what you're doing is you're killing someone. And that is, again, not true. Not true. What that is, removing life support, is allowing someone to die. Dr. Scott Ray, who's going to be here on Wednesday, says this, Killing and allowing to die are two very different things with very different intentions. Removing life support is allowing to die. But that gets very closely associated with the next thing. Things like euthanasia and doctor or physician-assisted suicide. Physician-assisted suicide is something that's just become legal here in California. And what that says is if you get to the end of your life, or not even to the end of your life, to the point where you have a terminal illness, you can choose then to end your life. And there's a famous story of someone who kind of had a party for the end of their life, and they went upstairs into their bedroom, laid down, and the doctor then gave them something via medicine that that killed them, right? And you have to ask yourself, is this something that is beneficial for our society? Is this something that the Bible teaches us? Is this something that we we should promote and be allowed to do? No, because what it does is it puts the exercise of autonomy and freedom above the right to life. And it says, I can choose to do whatever I want. There's another famous story of a Paralympian in Rio right now who's just won gold. And she's from Belgium and she has a spinal problem and she lives in a a severe amount of pain. And she says, after my gold in Rio, I'm thinking about physician-assisted suicide. I've done everything I want to do in life and I'm ready to die. And we have to make sense of this. Mary Warnock is an English bioethicist, and she says if, if you are old, if you are demented, you are wasting the resources of the National Health Service, and you should kill yourself. It's terrible, right? Absolutely terrible. But this is, the, this is the, a thought process of certain people. Life is not important to them. Life is not important. It's not a thing that we should put above other things. The society is more important. Healthcare, money is more important, and we should put that above life. And there's two problems. One, if you believe that autonomy be that high, then you have to say it's, it's able for everyone. Autonomy is okay for everyone. And that opens you up to saying the perfectly healthy young woman or young man can say, today I feel like dying, and you have to allow them to die. And it's not the answer. If you're in pain or if you're hurting, there is medicine to reduce pain. You don't have to kill yourself. So there is huge problems when it comes to saying at the end of life, you can choose or you can have a doctor choose for you. Because the problem is the argument of autonomy, the free choice, has to be then extended to everyone. The last one quickly we'll go through is that God cares about the defenseless. The two stories that I brought, I have for you there you can read, are the stories of the paralytic man being lowered through the roof so that Jesus may see him. And the story of the good Samaritan, right? Somebody helping someone laid out on the side of the road in need. These two stories show us that we ought to be caring for the people who have a hard time or incapable of caring for themselves. In this ability 
The ability of the human being does not require, it is not, is not required, right? Your ability as a human being is not required to be dignified as a human being. And in, in social normality, right? Being socially acceptable in our society is not a requirement to be treated for as a human being. We should treat all people with respect and with dignity because of who they are and their status as human beings. These are difficult things, and we have to fly through them, and, we've, and we have completely flown through them. Abortion is a huge thing. End-of-life issues is a huge thing. Defenseless people are huge things. The Bible says much about them. We are lucky that God has spoken and revealed his status, that he respects and loves life. However, for us, motivation, the, the desire to do what we want, right? The desire to have good reasons for all these things. Motivation does not justify wrongdoing. You may be highly motivated to have an abortion, but that does not justify ending life. You may be highly motivated to not live anymore, but that doesn't justify us ending our own lives. So we have a huge problem. We have to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, and if we value life in that way, if we believe that the Bible tells us that human life is that sacred gift, then we have to respond to that. And Jesus calls us to be people who are actively investing in promoting life, every life, again, regardless of the state of that life. So we have to respond, right? And that's this whole common ground thing is that we love and value life enough to do something, Will we do something about it or will we just talk about it and talk about, you know, things that, hey, I'm, I'm pro-life. I value life. I believe in the word of God. But do we do anything to back up the claims that we make or the stances that we have? Because I want to show us a little bit of how the world sees us as Christians when we say that we're pro-life. Here's an example, uh, just a little kind of random example of something I saw online. Uh, this was on Facebook, and there's this thing called The Onion. The Onion is a, a satire site. Actually, if you remember when Doug and I last spoke together, we, we talked about this Babylon Bee, which was a Christian satire site. The Onion is a not-Christian satire site. It's just a satire site. And it's, uh, it's funny, usually. But they had this video called Abortion, Myth versus Fact, and it was just a hit piece going against people with a pro-life value. And I was like, oh, wow, this isn't satire at all. This is just going hard at people who are pro-life. And then in the comments section, which is, you know, not necessarily where we should go to, uh, you know, find rational thought. But at the same time, this is, uh, and honestly, on all sides of every issue. But uh, this is where you begin to see some of the ways that people uh, would view us. Fact, pro-life people walk over the decaying and starving bodies of homeless people to show up at a clinic to say all life is sacred. And then it says, hence the newer moniker, pro-birth. That people think that Christians are pro-birth, not pro-life. And there might be some ways that we have earned that reputation, or at least that perception. Uh, there's another, uh, another one here, and which, by the way, that last one had 794 people agreeing with it, okay? Uh, then you've got this middle one, myth, pro-birth people care about the baby that's being aborted. 
fact, once born, pro-birth people offer no assistance when needed and demand women offer themselves as baby-making slaves when convenient. Uh, Another, uh, what always enrages me is that so many of the pro-life politicians and their supporters are the same ones who refuse support for children born into poverty and mothers trapped in poverty. Such a double standard. Now, what I believe is that (laughs) we don't want, we don't agree with this. We don't want to be perceived this way. This is not our heart. This is not, you know, describe the person who would say they're pro-life. This is not describe their heart. However, there's a problem when there's a perception of that, and we need to actually do something about it. And I don't, I'm not just saying it so that we can change the perception or any of those sorts of things, but what we don't want to be seen as and what many see us as are those who are pro-birth, but once that child is born, we don't care anymore. And a lot of that comes where we think our pro-life is only uh, lived out, uh, you know, at the voting booth, you know, and And it's true that we have to do that. It's true that that needs to be an important part of how we respond to this. However, it can't be the only way we respond to it. All right, so let's uh, let's look into some of this a little bit. Like, how do we respond? How do we actually do something about this? And we've got a few things here, okay? First of all, we respond in love. We respond in love when it comes to these, this issue and, and other issues that are heated, right? We have to keep in mind that we must respond in love to people. If we want to reach people for the gospel of Jesus, if we want to help them, we have to consider how we do that. And, you know, maybe we should be in front of abortion clinics. Maybe we should be doing that and, and protesting or picketing However, we should be thoughtful about how we do that. Someone was even telling me about uh, some differences they've seen in some different people as they've driven down uh, Tustin Avenue past the Planned Parenthood that's just down the street. Um, Now, one was there's been some people who are out there who are holding up signs of, like gory signs of bloody fetuses and signs that say you're going to hell, these sorts of signs. But then there's been others who hold up signs that say, how can we help you? We love you. We want to help you. You know, and there's a difference. Okay? I'm not—I just think we have to be able to respond in love. If this person is going to be helped, we have to help with love. 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of this. Without love, we are nothing. We're just a, a clanging gong. You know, and that's kind of what we sound like to the world when we have not love, but we say we value life. So we have to come at this with love. However, love is not just with our words. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So we respond with love, but love equals action. Our love has to equal action. The next thing that we would do then as we go through this is we have to educate ourselves. We have to understand what's going on when it comes to issues, uh, you know, where life is not valued. And that could be any of these different issues. Uh, but we even think here, again, when it comes to uh, abortion and the unborn, that 49% of abortion patients in 2014 had incomes of less than 100% of the federal poverty level, which was $11,670 for a single parent 
with no children. $11,000, half of all abortions. And if this reported, this number that was reported to the CDC number that year was 700,000. That 350,000 people who are getting an abortion are at that level of poverty. And so we have to recognize and realize that we have to then maybe do something about poverty as the church and not rely on the government, but say, hey, we as the church want to help. So we educate ourselves on what's going on behind why some of these abortion rates are going up beyond the things that, that we might already know about or think. Now, there's a whole host of things these could be. And when it comes to educating ourselves on this, we do recommend some books that you could read. On the back of the outline has a, a, a list of a few, uh, a couple of those. We specifically recommend by Dr. Scott Ray. And Scott Ray, like you said, will be here this Wednesday night for this 90-minute session Q&A. Doug and I are going to ask him some questions. You'll be able to ask some questions. But he's not just a professor and author on Christian ethics, but he's also a leading ethicist for about four different hospitals. So he's doing medical ethics for hospitals and helping them with some of those decisions. He's got, like, you know, he's doing real work in the real world on some of this stuff, not just in the academic realm. And so I encourage you to come to be part of uh, that discussion this Wednesday night. So we have to educate ourselves, but we also, oops, sorry, we also have to vote according to our beliefs with this. We vote according to our beliefs for what will most contribute to life. That's how I've voted. That's been my voting pattern over the course of, of my life. But I'm also, I'm being more personally convicted that that's not where our uh, pro-life stance should end. If our pro-life stance ends as you leave the voting booth, then we're not really doing enough, okay? We have to do something more about it. And so we lovingly care for individuals who've made decisions that they regret. We come alongside women who have made these choices. We come alongside families who have been supportive of a physician-assisted suicide. We come alongside these people and we help them, you know, and, and we're there for them. I was talking to a friend who works in, a, in like a pregnancy clinic uh, helping young women with these decisions. And she said that a few of these people she's heard, they say, why would I let my baby come into this broken hurting world in my messed up life where their life is going to be messed up when I could just send them to heaven to be with Jesus. That's the perspective. And that's a, I hope that what that does is just humanize that person a bit for you and to consider the, the decisions that they're making that we might believe and we do believe that that's the wrong decision. However, we have to help and love that person and before they make the decision and after they've made that decision. Uh, and then uh, finally, we respond to the needs that cause people to not value life. And this could be across the board. And what is so amazing today is that we have this whole reach fair out here. And we have multiple tables out there directly related to issues of life that we're talking about today on all three of these realms that we're, we're speaking of. Unborn, end-of-life issues, and the defenseless. And some of those, uh, these are listed in your bulletin as well, immediate ways to respond. We have the Obria Medical Clinic, which is one of these uh, pregnancy clinics. 
We have Safe Families for Children. This is an organization that helps take in people's kids for a short amount of time voluntarily by that. Let's say single mom would say, hey, can you take my kids for a short amount of time while I get my life right and while I'm working on stuff? And then you can get their kid, they can get their kids back. And then we help that mom as well. It's an amazing ministry. You could consider foster care, adoption, or supporting others. We have an orphan care ministry where you can look more into that. You can serve children with special needs uh, in the bridge ministry. You can serve with our retirement home ministry, uh, folks with, uh, with dementia, memory issues, and Alzheimer's. Um, and then you could serve at, for different things that we have with Reach Local of helping those who are at, at that level of poverty. We're going to have something called Neighbor Good Day uh, here at Calvary Church where we're going to be able to help some of those in need. We have all sorts of different ways that you can be involved in helping those who are, you know, really struggling when it comes to issues of poverty. So there's a lot of ways that you can respond today because we love and value life enough to respond. We love and value life enough to respond. So Doug and I want to just briefly be able to share with you uh, a couple of just personal experiences and stories with this. So Doug. Yeah, this, like we said, these things don't happen within um, a vacuum. You know, there's a lot, life is very messy and it's very difficult for my wife and I holding on to this strong ethic that all life is valuable um, and that people are valuable and, and people are messy and situations are messy. We've just jumped in in a lot of ways uh, into adoption and and what adoption looks like across the board, who needs to be adopted, what children need help. Um, Is adoption really helping this problem of abortion? Um, And what we've done is we have one adopted child named, well, he's in the process of being adopted, um, but his name is Matthew. He's a wonderful little tiny human being. Um, (laughs) But we not only have adopted him in, we've jumped into his life, into his situation situation too. And it is in a lot of ways messy. And there are people who are in chaos. And the situations in which children need to be adopted out of are are generally chaotic situations. The children are wonderful and should be celebrated and need to be helped. And they're Mm. beautiful people. But the situations they come out of are chaotic. And even Mm. now, uh, my wife and I are, are, are moving into new adoptions, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. And it, it hurts, and it costs a lot, and the risk that you have to put out there, and the financial risk, the, the emotional risk, is it's real. Um, but it's not enough just to say that you support life. You have to actually go out and support life. And, and we are, in doing this, I see the need. The need of poverty is there, the need, the need of, of help, of counsel, of just love um, and support for all these people because they're in chaos. And that's what, for my wife and I, that's what it means to, to have sanctity of life and to support people is to get out there and to, to get messy. Yeah. Yeah, and I was going to share, I'm not sure how much I'm going to share, but uh, uh, we'd planned for this a little while ago, but my mom passed away a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's getting harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> uh, so but like she's had Alzheimer's for almost 10 years. And, uh, oh man, that's, that's a bad idea. (laughs) 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 Oh man. But I just think of her last few years, she couldn't speak. She couldn't, she couldn't walk. She didn't have fine motor skills. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't go to the bathroom on her own. She couldn't bathe herself. You know, none of these things. And, uh, I just, 
for someone to say that her life doesn't have value? How dare you, you know? And we're not God. And I think that, you know, I thought even at times, like, her quality of life is just awful, you know? She just sits there. But I, I could not presume to say then that I should end that life, make that decision to end her life. And for me to see, even at her memorial and talking to people afterwards, even people saying, Eric, in those last few years, I was able to go see your mom. And I remember even at one time hearing her in the midst of that whole thing of not being able to speak and all of that, all of a sudden she be, was able to sing a hymn. And it was like blowing people's minds. It's like miraculous moment. It was so beautiful, you know. So I want us just to have that sense of, yes, those are real moments that people are in that are hard. And, you, you know, in the midst of some of those moments, I think, God, I mean, at the same time thinking that, my prayer was, Lord, take her to be with you. But it's not for me to decide. It's for him to decide. And so we value and we love all life, no matter what state it's in. And then we support it. In the midst of that, even my dad saying, and every, you know, every single day while my mom was in that state, my dad was there. And that's incredible. That's, that's valuing life enough to do something, to be there every single day. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. So I, what, what we want, what our heart is for, for our church, is that we would respond by doing something. You know, that we would love enough to care for someone. That we would extend ourselves uh, beyond the voting booth, including the voting booth, but extend ourselves beyond that. And to, to help people in true times of need. So I encourage you today as we, um, in a little while as the service ends, you know, we're going to worship a little bit more. We're going to have a chance now to give. But even to consider right now as we, as we sing and as we give our offerings to the Lord, let's uh, consider how we would respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time and this challenge from your word. Lord, we want to submit to the authority of your word in all things, no matter how comfortable or uncomfortable we feel about it, God. So, Lord, may you convict our hearts. May you challenge us. Lord, and also may you help us to respond in love. And, Lord, for those in this room who've made decisions that they deeply regret, Lord, may you bring healing and peace in their lives that only can come from you. But may they find a safe place in our community as well.